Hey everybody, we're back with another episode of Two Idiots Take on the World. And today we're joined by uh, one of our friends, Mira Karthik. So Mira, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. So hi, I'm Mira. Um, I am a graduated senior and I've been friends with Sid and Adrian for a while. Um, and I don't know what else. I think that's basically it. I'm just here to talk, I guess, and have a good conversation. Yeah, <laughs> she, she's being modest, but she's a yeah. big um, activist and organizes our community a lot and uh, helps yeah. out a bunch in just so many different um, activities. And she's very passionate about what she believes in. Oh, yep. thank you. Okay, I guess that's, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's that and, yeah, okay. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, yeah and we so... wanted to talk to you today about um, some of the things they're passionate about, um, particularly things like. Um, criminal justice reform and um, police brutality and um, systemic racism and all of those issues which are really so prevalent today um, and really they're being talked about a lot and I think it's good that we we cover it today and we kind of discuss those ideas and um, it's definitely good to talk about it now when things are so heated. So um, Mira if you want to give a little bit of an intro about um, the issues with the current criminal justice system and um, maybe talk about the, the, the movie 13, things like that, and then we can start a conversation. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, of course, I'm still learning. Like, I don't wanna um, say like confidently that I know everything because I really don't, but- um, You're on the right podcast then. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like um, criminal justice reform is something that I'm personally passionate about because it's, a system that needs a lot of reforms. I think there are a lot of different systems in America that go hand in hand with each other and they've kind of worked against people, which for a lot of government systems, the whole purpose is to help people. And I feel like um, the idea of like jails and the entire system being like there to like re rehabilitate like other people has completely like just not happened. I don't, I don't, I guess like, so in general, like, you know, there's a lot of different components that go into criminal justice reform. There's a lot of different components that go into mass incarceration. And I feel like um, over time, since the beginning of when the system began, um, it's kind of taken away from the main goal, which is to rehabilitate and reform people to come back. Um, into society and re-enter society um, as a better person. And I personally think that um, there's a lot of other forces that work against these humans that are trying to rehabilitate or uh, reform themselves um, only to either scar them because of the way that um, jails are like right now. And also um, it dehumanizes them. And um, there's a lot of stigmas around um, people with convictions. And um, on top of that, like mass incarceration as a whole, um, there's also a lot of other uh, systems that are working against the people that are trying to reform themselves. For example, as we've seen like the police system, 
um, has, there's actively been so many injustices that are now coming to light with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, but this has been like a huge trend, especially over the past um, couple of years. And also on top of that, there's the prison industrial complex, which is its own um, system on its own that's really corrupt and it's there to kind of like benefit from like the pain that other um, criminals or uh, people that are trying to re rehabilitate themselves are going through. So yeah, I guess that's kind of like a general summary. Yeah, wait, so I just want to go back to something you said at the beginning, because this is uh, it's just, this is about rehabilitation, I guess. Um, this, like, I've heard this from a few different people when I, I ask, I've tried to ask a lot of people, like, because I think the question of why we have a justice system is, like, pretty important, like, you know, I, on an ideological level. And I think I've heard, like, three main responses. Like, the first is the thing you said, rehabilitation. We want that uh, criminals and offenders to, like, you know, re-enter society. And that's something I'm sure, like, is a definitely noble goal. The other two things I've heard are you want to deter other people from committing similar crimes. And the last thing is, I guess this is more of a vague idea, but it's the idea of like justice that you get your due. I guess like some, some, like some people describe it as the idea of karma, right? So I guess like, how do you think a criminal justice system should balance those three ideals or if there are other factors that should happen? And Adrian, you can weigh in here too. Uh, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so. I think that the debate between like punitive versus rehabilitative prison systems kind of fits into all three of those. Um, I think starting from the third one, the idea of like karma, or, like an eye for an eye, I think is stupid. Uh, I don't think that, you know, um, the idea that like, let's say you, uh, you rob someone of something, then they have the right to rob you now isn't a really good precedent to set in society. Uh, I think that that's not very smart. Um, and then I think um, the idea of deterring future crimes is important, but what I would say is that just the like ability to, to take away someone's liberties and freedoms is enough of a deterrent. So e even if your jail sentence is rehabilitative, and even if it is kind of like, even if it's not terrible conditions, if it's just like normal living conditions, as long as you're separated from like your family, from your friends, from your jobs, from your activities, I would say that that's punishment enough, especially even like the stigma surrounding being incarcerated. That is definitely punishment enough, I'd say. Um, so I think that, that for deterring, just taking someone's freedoms is more than enough. Um, and then I think rehabilitation is super important because a lot of countries that have tried um, systems that are more rehabilitative, like you know our, our famous Nordic countries, um, they see a lot lower, um, what's it called, recidivism rates, that um, less rates of um, reoffenders, of people committing crimes again, because you know they what they do is they instead of just punishing them, they, they you know try and make them into better functioning members of society. So I think that um, that should be the goal of the prison system in my view. I agree. I think that was like, that is like the technical goal of um, the prison system. I agree completely that um, stripping away your liberties, especially for someone that is being punished for a crime that they've committed is already punishment enough. And um, there's a lot of deeper and more philosophical um, ideas on what is good and bad in terms of like punishing a criminal that you know like the uh, death penalty and like other forms of punishment but I think that basic um, level of just like taking away your liberties can that already is like is like a big step into um, I think punishment so I I think what's happened is over the years like um, again with time like 
this system that was meant specifically to just uh, demand justice uh, or like, again, rehabilitate has turned into um, dehumanization of both like the people that are being like that have been convicted, but also like um, if you've watched like the documentary 13th, which whoever's watching this, please watch it. It's so informative and there's so watch many it, yeah. amazing like uh, perspectives, but you can see that the people within the system, um, even like the people that are working, like all the employees of like um, jails and stuff, it's just, they've been de like, they dehumanize others because the way that the, it's such a violent and broken system where they're not, um, the quality of life is already bad when your liberties are being stripped, which I completely agree with, but it's, they bring it down to an even worse level, like of like, um, it's just not, it's not humane, like, and so I think that the, like what you were saying about, said like the first thing that you said about like the criminal justice system is like, there needs to be like checks and balances between um, the different parties involved when it comes to rehabilitating um, people, but also like um, if you're working for the system versus um, like the judge, like it's, there's so many um, big like groups of corrupt, um, like, and I guess, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there's so many things at hand right now, like when it comes to the criminal justice system, it's not just um, like law and then jail. It's like, there's also, again, like the prison industrial complex. And so everyone kind of benefits from the dehumanization of criminals, but at the same time, the criminals are the ones that are being harmed the most in the process of what's so-called like what you're supposed to be like re rehabilitating I don't know so yeah, yeah I, I actually wanted to, to oh yeah it. I just wanted to speak like to the last thing you said which is about the idea of like dehumanization within the prisons uh I don't know if like I mean this is kind of a, the Stanford prison experiment like the famous experiment I'm not sure I I've read some sources that it's like not as credible, but I mean, like the point was, is that like, it's something that I kind of believe, which is that when humans are given power over other humans, right, which is how the justice system work, then like naturally it doesn't turn out very well. And I think the Stanford prison experiment proved that. So I wanted to see like, in terms of like the reform that we have to make for the, like for the criminal justice system to ensure that there is more humane treatment do you think that if humans are, you know, trained, like specifically, and the argument could also be made about police officers, that police officers are given an immense amount of power over other humans, and that could lead to like the un inhumane treatment of other criminals during police interactions. But the point is like, do you think training would be a solution for both the like prison guards, prison wardens, and police officers that could potentially fix the problem? Um, okay, I'll just start off. I don't, I don't think that's, um, that's possible. They're, they are trained. I think that's like a huge part of um, both wardens and jails and like employees within like the jailing system and also within police officers. They're taught, they're like, like one part of their training is sensitivity training, which I mean, it's such a, um, it's such an important thing. Like the concept of sensitivity training is to make sure you're aware of like different circumstances and you're understanding how to um, talk to people and like communicate with your communities because the whole point of police and the whole policing system is is there to basically protect the communities. It's just another role in order to keep a so-called like safe society, right? So um, time and time again with every single um, 
like injustice from police that we've seen with every single video in 13th you saw that guy um i don't remember his name but they had videos he was um he like gave a bunch of interviews after he was oh, yeah, in I remember that. prison yeah um he like there was videos like live footage of just like police or not the police, the wardens in the jail like and like the guards in the jails just like shoving him to the ground for no reason like and they're taught at the beginning of their training like sensitivity training is such a huge um part of like training to be um any of those kinds of like protective officer type jobs and it just has proved time and time again that when there's is a human being that believes truly that they are like the like superior like they have more power than um another human being that it doesn't matter how much sensitivity training or how much um reform you want to make to that specific um like concept of and like lesson but it's just like it doesn't work it's like the human power and like the human spirit like it takes over like everything you've learned and then you get the sense of like power and like you're in this like god complex that's what a lot of these police officers that we've seen in the recent news have had like um the police officer that killed um george floyd which was like you know the like it was like you saw like the video has been circulating it was horrible but you could see in his eyes like if you he was smirking like, he was smirking he mm -hmm. genuinely in his like and it's, you could see that he he genuinely believed that he was doing the right thing and that's disappointing but at the same time like that's like evidence right there that like after being taught from like how many ever hours that a police officer has had to like learn about sensitivity training how to communicate with your communities how to be a good representative and protect um like the communities in a in a safe way like even despite all of that that didn't work so i think that it's not there needs to be a much bigger reform than just reforming sensitivity training specifically. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and one thing that I was gonna get out earlier is um, what, what you mentioned at the beginning, um, which was that um, our prison system and justice system started out um, to be rehabilitative and to help people out, but I am not sure if that's actually true because it didn't, didn't it start out as a way to like, um, detain runaway slaves and w w wasn't it didn't start out as a way to discriminate against marginalized communities and I think that I, I've heard that argument from a lot of progressives which it definitely like it, it makes sense and I think that um, that gets to the idea that we're talking about now which is that um, in no matter what context absolute power corrupts absolutely you know and that's like a term from AP Euro that we we learned and I think that um, there is an argument to be made that inherently if you give anyone power over someone else is going to be abused um, and I think that, you know, as someone who is a libertarian, I think that I would say the solution to that is to, like, take away their power. You know, wh why are we giving these people power over um, over other people in such great quantities? So I, I agree with you that um, training is, is not enough. What you need to do is you need to um, take away the power of these law enforcement officers um, because inherently they're going to abuse it. I think that that's just true. Um, so the way you take away that power is to take away um, what they enforce the things like ending the war on drugs, which was a big part of movie 13, of, of how just terrible the war on drugs was for black communities and how it was kind of like um, dog whistle politics to say, okay, we're gonna um, start the war on drugs. It was really a war, war on minorities. So I think that, you know, ending what the police actually enforce, like drug laws, um, and then at the same time, just um, actual reasonable um, 
reforms that would get at the power they have, like ending qualified immunity, like um, ending no-knock warrants, just kind of putting safeguards onto what they can tangibly do, um, I think is the best way forward. Um, and, and it can't be something soft, like, oh, we're going to give them one more diversity talk and let them go onto the streets. I don't think that's enough. I did not think that's enough. Yeah, I think uh, actually one, I actually kind of want to push back on this training thing because, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I hear your point, right? Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And honestly, it makes a lot of sense to me. The Stanford prison experiment kind of like proved that for me. But police officers, I don't know exactly about uh, off, uh, wardens and people who work in the justice system or criminal like justice system, but I know at least police officers, they get two to four hours of training per year. And if they go to the police academy, then they get Nothing. five months of training. Exactly, right? That's mm -hmm. what I'm saying, right? And it depends on where you like, like work, but on average, it's about two to four hours. They do go to police academy at the beginning for five months. Of that, I think four months or some massive amount is used to teach them how to like, uh, like be aggressive, how to deal with criminals, etc. Right? And only maybe a month or I think a little bit less is used to deal with how to de-escalate and how to ensure that situations don't get violent. So I think like, I mean, the massive lack of training, I don't exactly know if there's a study that shows that an increase in training would lead to a decrease in police brutality, but I have to imagine that this massive lack of training that we have right now has to at least be a contributing factor because even if maybe like it's not going to solve everything, it's egregiously low right now. Like soldiers in the army, soldiers across the entire, like they receive about 18 months of training to go on six months of deployment. It's three quarters of the time is used for training, de-escalation, because I agree that in scenarios where you think you're fighting for your life, you don't really care, right? Police officers, I don't know, jail wardens probably don't think that, but like the point is, is that like, you want to prevent it from getting to that scenario anyway. So I agree that we should definitely make sure that there's more accountability in the system, because that's like, as long as we all agree that the system has to be there to either re rehabilitate or like to enforce the law, then we have to ensure something has to happen and accountability and I think more training would help. I don't know what your guys' thoughts are. Yeah, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think you can do both. Um, I think that um, just saying more training can be kind of a cop-out for people that say, oh, look, we did so much, we're adding this more training. Like, I think the um, San Jose um, government said, okay, we're not gonna reform the police at all, but hey, we're gonna create the Office of Racial Equity. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's what you're gonna do? Like, there, there's so much like structural reform that needs to happen and you're trying to appease like all of these angry people with a five person office of racial equity. So I think that um, yeah, I my issue- Wait, I was, thought in San Jose, didn't they establish that thing which was like, I, it did exactly what you wanted or at least a little bit where they mm -hmm. uh, took away, they said for dealing with nonviolent crimes or crimes that are not likely to escalate to violence Police officers are not going there. Instead, they send civilians who are trained and who don't have weapons. San Francisco, not San Jose. Oh, is that San Francisco? Okay, my bad. But yeah, yeah, that, yeah. And, and I think like that was that a solution you guys would support? No. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Which one? The the one in San Jose the San or San Francisco? One. San Francisco. Oh, one. sorry. Uh, I'll let Mira go first. But short answer for me is yes. But Mira, go ahead. Wait, no. Can you repeat that? Like, what? So, what exactly was being passed in San Francisco? Uh, so basically what they did was instead of police officers going to deal with uh, crimes that have a potential to escalate to violence, they're going to send civilians with no arms, but who are trained to de-escalate the situation. Yeah. So, okay. So basically it's just like using the community to help the community, right? Mm -hmm. So I definitely agree with that. I think that 
um, this whole idea of um, like, you know, a cab, that's like one of the biggest phrases that happened and like defunding the police. The idea is to reinvest into those kinds of community services. So um, helping train or um, providing um, employment to people that can handle different cases and like different um, issues that police are technically like that's within the jurisdiction of police like currently is definitely a good step in the right direction. I definitely think that there's a lot of different things that police are supposed to um, be in charge of that can definitely like, that can be um, distributed to different community members that have experiences in different things. I know one of the things I've seen repeatedly um, that was under the police jurisdiction, especially in Minneapolis, that was one of the places that they were um, like reinvesting the money in was um, domestic abuse cases, which a lot of times the police officers are the ones that come to handle um, cases that are called, but what they're doing is they're investing it in services in which um, the victim of a domestic abuse um, case can uh, discreetly contact and um, uh, contact like a resource to have like another community member come and either save the victim from like the abuser or um, or I think there's a few other alternatives or like find a way to um, like restrain the um, the abuser while the victim um, can get away or like whatever. But I think that police having guns can escalate the situation um, a lot. Um, I think police being angry can escalate the situation a lot. I think police in general and like those kinds of scenarios is really like it can go wrong and escalate very, very fast. So reinvesting and like into those community services can increase employment and like for different people but also like it's such a safe and a safe way that like I feel like it can it's definitely like a good step in the right direction I think it can definitely have a huge impact in a positive way towards both contributing to the safety of neighborhoods and communities like Almaden and like smaller like little um, suburban areas and also at the same time it gives less like of like the god complex kind of thing like you don't feel like you're better than everyone it's just everyone's kind of together and equal so yeah and um so one thing that i wanted to pose is um the, the question of what do you do with the money that's been defunded from the police so i think that um i know mira and i agree i don't know if sid also agrees that we should look to severely defund the police i, I think that we might be on the same page on that um but the, the question is um, where does that money go? Um, does it go back into reinvesting in communities? Does it go back into funding um, social workers or, or where does it go? Um, and um, w one thing that I'm skeptical of is that money actually getting to the right places. Um, so I think that one of the um, big uh, points in favor of reinvesting in communities is that it, it'll end up lowering crime because the communities are, will be better off and have more like funds invested into them. Um, I think that that's definitely true. I think that like poverty creates crime. But my question is, is that like a one-to-one -one correspondence? Can you say, okay, for X amount of dollars, I take away from the police and put it into um, some community fund, will crime go down proportionately? Uh, I think that like to, to a degree it can, but the question is like, how much will it go down? Like, can we actually rely on just investing in communities to bring down our crime rate? Or do we still need some level of enforcement from officers from that risk of crime. And then the, the next question is, is um, with that money, if we fund social workers, do they need to be funded by the government? Um, don't these um, organizations exist without us? For example, I saw a 
a post today on Instagram and it, and it said, um, San Jose, San Clara County, alternatives to 911. I thought that was really cool. I looked through it. There's resources for mental health. There's three different numbers. There's youth services. There's four different numbers. There's domestic and, and gendered violence, four different phone numbers. Um, experiencing homelessness, there's five different phone numbers. Um, for LGBTQ folks, there is four phone numbers. Elder care, three phone numbers, et cetera. So uh, my question is, is that if these sort of um, programs exist in the status quo, when we defund the police, why don't we just give it back to the taxpayers and just reduce the size of our government? Okay, uh, I guess I'll first weigh in on that because honestly, like, sure, uh, decrease the funding of the police, I agree. But I also, I'm, I think this is something Adrian was alluding to in that there's always a balance and there's no, I don't think there's a way that you can just strip all of the police's funding, put it into social programs and expect that everything will be okay. I think there has to be some of both. And yes, I think the idea that the police are contacted for basically everything is pretty ridiculous. Like honestly, 911, like, I mean, I don't know, this is just a solution I thought of right now, but like 911 should just be able to reroute you to those other areas that like actually can deal with the stuff. Like, should they be funded issues? by the government? Should the government fund those programs like with, with taxpayer money? Oh, um, I guess it depends on the program a lot. I'm not, I'm not going to mm-hmm. always say that like, like, yes, I think to the degree that you can localize it, you should try to localize it and ensure that it's specific for the community's problems. But like, sure. I mean, maybe there shouldn't be four numbers for mental health, but there should be one that's controlled by the government to ensure that it's always there. I think that's like the okay. biggest thing the government can do. It can ensure that something exists. And if it's the use of last resort sure but it has to be there and i think some of the programs you mentioned have to be there so, so it's kind of like maintaining that um safety net that okay the government will make sure that at least one of these stays active because i think the the issue with leaving it to the private sector is that there's always a possibility they just stop operating um i think that i i would agree with you i think that having the government fund um certain programs like this is important um, i just wanted to pose the question of you know, a lot of people say that that, like, you know, um, private charity is more effective than government spending in these areas. And the question is, if they already exist now, uh, why should we take these sort of more effective private charities and put them into now like more stagnant government programs that have been proven just not to work? Like, we've increased spending on minorities and poorer citizens um, by so much in the past 50 years, but yet the, the like the black poverty rate has still been increasing. You know, so the question is like, what actually helps? Um, that's something that I don't have an answer for. I think that, that maybe Mira can touch on it, but I think that this is a good conversation to have is what actually helps these communities? Because we all want to help them. What can we do? Like, what can the government do to help fund these communities properly and get them um, to close the wealth gap? Um, so again, I, I'm still trying to figure that out myself, but I can't. We all are. Yeah, I can say like really confidently that um, I think the really, the thing is, is like, it's going to take a lot of different areas in both communities and local government and state government and even federal government to implement these kinds of um, equitable like programs to make sure that everybody's kind of having a level playing field. Um, I think the one thing too is um, we were talking about privatization. A lot of those hotlines are from private companies. I think the 
um, like most important reason why like it could be public and it should be public and maybe like part of the money um, should go into those kinds of investments is because um, hotlines like those make like if especially if it's under like a government jurisdiction it makes sure like it ensures that um, that there is a resource for everyone and it is accessible and it's um, there at all times. Um, I do agree with um, I do agree with you guys that like it's really hard to see like hold the government like local government especially accountable for where this money is going to go. Um, that's an issue though I think that comes with like like making sure that the local government is in check. Like obviously there is a lot of issues. Um, facing um, local government. Like we've seen like the way that they handled um, some of the bills, like when it came to the funding thing, there was a commentary that was posted about some of the council members making jokes about it and at like the expense of the minorities that they were trying to help and um, Mayor Licardo um, saying stuff that kind of goes against like what he was trying to say to the community. So that's like a separate issue on its own, I think. Um, and so I do think that some of the money could go back to taxpayers. It is a lot of money, like the amount of money, I think it's like $400 million that are, it's, a lot, uh, yeah. it's like going into police, like for what though? Like if you're literally like, what's the point of spending this much money on all these programs that are meant to help the police, help the community and like nothing is working, like they're not actually doing anything. I definitely don't think that like, that much money would go into other programs. We've seen like the library is running on like, like their budget is this small compared to policing. Like money, like a, even a small portion of the policing budget could go to like, go back into the government and then the rest of it, it that's up to it. But I do think that like the government needs to be held accountable. And the second thing is in terms of um, local action that you can, like I feel like is really important to consider is, um, First of all, education, our public school systems have not trained us or educated us properly on anything. I'm honestly really disappointed that a majority of the information that I found out, I didn't already know. For example, I didn't know Juneteenth was a thing. I genuinely did not, I literally had no idea. I took a push, I took AP Euro, I took AP government. Like I feel like at some point along okay, the way, I, okay, my point is, you did too, okay, let's all be honest here. Um, my point is, there it should have come up, and it didn't, yeah. in discussion. It, and so I think that holding our district, especially in public schools, accountable for um, adding, like, uh, lessons about specifically minority history instead of just, like, a paragraph in our textbook, not, like, especially African-American history, because that's something that's barely talked about, like, the actual culture and, like, um, history behind it, not just like slavery, the civil war, and also other minority groups, um, instead of it being a paragraph, like actually spend time on those lessons, hold um, on like a bigger level, like college board accountable for um, providing like curriculum for that. And also SGC trustees for like their rhetoric and how they talk to these communities. I know personally, because of my experience in SGC um, and the fact that I've been part of the district and I've seen it on both like a teacher level because my mom's a teacher within the district and as a student, the way that the admin treat their students, the way that the admin talk to their, to the teachers to kind of like, you know, communicate. It's very like, their rhetoric is very offensive and oftentimes it's very ignorant. I think a lot of those things like need to change in order for us to, that's like even just like a starting point on the education standpoint that like, that 
all this needs like their priorities need to change in order for there to be changes within like to even start with like um making sure that like every person like every student is growing up with like the same play like the a level playing field which is just equity and equity I think the other thing, equity versus equality, completely different things. And I think that that's often overlooked as well. Um, so I agree, going back to like the original, cause that was kind of a tangent. Um, I definitely think that um, if we like the money that can be used, like from the amount of money in the budget that's being spent on policing can be used in so many productive ways. And I think that it was disappointing to see their decisions on the budget that were um, that was passed um, the city council members, but I think at the same time we need to hold them accountable like that's so much money that's going into something a program that's proven time and time again like not to work and it could be going into other programs that can be even more helpful. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I have a question yeah. for Sid now actually. Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> you can ask your question. Um, so as, as, as a sworn federalist, Sid, I, my, my question to you is uh, what is the role of different tiers of government in this? Like we're talking about local government. Should federal government get involved also? Should it be state, county, local? What, what, what do you think? Um, all right, <laughs> sworn federalist. Man, we're both two idiots here. I don't think either of us have legit political ideologies. But regardless, um, what my views are on education specifically um, is that the federal government is there to ensure a mandatory minimum education requirements that everyone has to meet. And then every other locality, right? And the reason why, and then like basically as you move down the localities, it's an increase in the educational requirements you have to meet. And that way you ensure not only that everyone receives at least a minimum amount of education to start off with, but also that you tune the education to the area that you are. And I think that like to touch on Mira's point of accountability, the idea of federalism, I think upholds the idea of accountability a lot better because mm -hmm. you have a lot more voting power and just power in general to change the mayor of San Jose than you do the president of the United States. And that's why I think like you have a lot more power of change at your local level. And if we concentrate the power in the federal level to the point that people don't know who their congressperson is, who don't know like who their uh, mayor is, et cetera, right? That's not good. And instead we should try to distribute the power. And also, you know, sometimes just maybe government isn't necessary to solve this problem at all. And, uh, and then we should have, you know, some sort of private solution to it. And I think it's basically the way it has to work is it has to be an experiment where we keep trying new things and we have to always ensure that any form of government is accountable so that if something we try doesn't work, we can ensure that we fix it and ensure that like the actual solution is achieved over time. And I think that's in general my philosophy, like in the current state and uh, whether or not it's implemented, I guess is up to you guys yeah the, the reason why i asked that question is because i think that um the idea of localities knowing their own students best and the idea that localities like um can tailor their education to best meet certain students um is very true but the question is for, for, for that like mandatory minimum do you include things like racial equity like literacy um and because what i would say is that when you leave it just up to like localities I, I not to like slam Alabama or something, but I, I don't see them, you know, um, pushing um, like racial equity in their schools. Um, but then there's also the question of um, like, should the federal government step in and force them to do that um, if they don't also want it? Also the question of like, 
why does like why do you care that the people in Alabama don't know about racial equity because the question then becomes how do they affect you and the only way in which they affect you is when they like or probably the biggest way is when they elect their politicians to the federal government and the federal government controls what you can and cannot believe in right or it just controls like basically components of your everyday life so yes i agree like obviously not every single locality will think the same but mm -hmm. the idea of moving power away from the federal government is the, also the idea that like you shouldn't have to care what other localities think because they should not be able to affect your way of life that's something I, and then something i think adrian believes in too as a libertarian on a more extreme level because he believes he shouldn't have to care what anyone else don't call thinks. me extreme <laughs> hey it's yeah, true yeah. <laughs> wait what did you say though i, I didn't hear what you said i what, think what like, I yeah no i like i think when we talked to brandon Payne and i got all my knowledge of libertarianism what i did know is that mm -hmm. like the idea of libertarianism is not that everybody's perfect but it's that nobody can harm you with their imperfections mm -hmm. yeah and i think like um i i'm gonna push back a little bit on, on that and on you saying that we shouldn't care about what happens in Alabama. Um, because like uh, a lot of progressives make their slogan, like fight for someone, Mira, what is it? It's like fight for someone that's not you or something like that. Like it was like Bernie Sanders' thing. I, I remember that, um, fight for someone else. Um, okay. So I think that um, like the idea of, of, of morality being like malleable and subjective and that it, you should, um, you know, apply it differently in different localities with different morals um is like has merit to it but i think when it gets to the idea of like discriminating based on immutable characteristics like race gender sexuality etc like should we really be allowing like um certain backwards moralities to create laws that don't respect those immutable characteristics mira yes go okay so i'm just gonna like preface by saying like the most basic thing about this entire argument is like um, and the reason why education is so important, and it's, I think that I personally don't believe in mandatory, like, minimums being, like, localized. I think everyone should have the same quality of education, or at least the same, like, basic knowledge given to them, is because, um, and What's I minimum think- minimum then, right? Like, well, the same basic okay, knowledge minimum, minimum. but no, I, no, I understand, like, mandatory minimum for, um, for education, but what I'm saying is, I think that- it's different. You can see it's different per state. The curriculum is different in every state. What they teach you is different in every state. And it's good that some of it is like localized, like towards like, oh, like, oh, we learn kind of about California's history specifically, but like Iowa doesn't care about California's history. That's like Californians care about California history. But like, you're right. Things about like race, gender, like um, equity versus equality, like basic, like training when it comes to like, um, human rights issues or like humans in history and stuff that needs to be taught to everybody it should not be taught in a different way and like the issue with this is because it and it, it stems so far back that it's really it is a complicated issue is that like when you are like when you grow up with certain ideologies and when you grow up with certain beliefs or you grow up with certain um ways to think about how people should be perceived or how you should, those people, that generation who believes a certain thing grows up to be the generation that teaches the next generation and it passes down from generation to generation, right? So let's say like in Alabama or in any of those states that may not necessarily, like when they look at an African-American person, they think, okay, and like this is also like, this isn't just 
a United States issue. This is an issue that's in every country or like in many countries, especially because I can speak from like being an Indian minority, like I know is that darker color is perceived as not as equal, like you're lower, like lesser than. That's like a, that's a huge thing in India. And I can, I, and it is a belief that a lot of, um, and there it's, it, it's in interviews. Like when you talk to Al, uh, like citizens of Alabama or like citizens of Tennessee or something like that, there are like, like people that exist that genuinely believe because they were taught through the education system and through their own um, experiences that uh, dark, this is just one example too, but like dark, um, skin is considered lesser and what does what happens is then these people go up and they become um cops they become judges they become teachers they become all these like like uh people like that are supposed to represent um and teach the next generation of students and so mandatory minimums um if it's brought up to a federal uh, level when it comes to um like education standards means that like if everyone's being taught the same information teachers mm -hmm. again it's kind of hard to um like over like give oversight over all 50 states all of the schools all the teachers and like what they're teaching but for the most part the point is is like if everyone's given the same textbook about these certain issues then they're all getting the same information where um, teachers and their personal opinions can't necessarily affect the content that's being taught in class like as much or like I don't know if that makes sense but like that's like that's a huge that's a huge issue on a separate part but like that's part of the thing with um that's like a part of the issue with like police brutality too is like their own personal beliefs and like what they were taught because of their own curriculum has taught them um to think of certain groups of people and certain communities as a different way when they're not at all that and in India said I you definitely know like the caste system is a huge thing or i don't know if you're a brahmin but the way that it yeah, works is like it's like brahmins are the top caste and then it goes down and at down coincidentally oh who knew those are the people that um for the most part have dark skin they're the lowest class um they were the ones that were enslaved when like when india was like a whole kingdom and brahmins were the top and it because it stems so far back and like that's a again this is a whole other issue um like genuinely like immigrants like who are brahmins because again like when there's like that kind of system where you think like when light skins are considered better or something they're given more opportunities which puts the like dark-skinned human beings like at a disadvantage like that's like a whole thing but you're like my immigrant parents were grown up to believe that light is better than dark right so like that's just one or like that that can go with like a uh, gender that can go with um sexual orientation that's like that's like it's a huge thing so i think that if the federal government is or even like a private sector but it would have to be like throughout all 50 states it would have to they would have to like have jurisdiction over the education and they would ha it would have to be a monopoly if it was a private company like the curriculum needs to be the same for some of this stuff because they need to be given the objective information instead of a teacher's subjective like opinion about certain things i don't know if like yeah uh i guess i'll weigh in on that i think like yeah i mean when i describe like my ideal version of the education system i don't know what the mandatory minimum should be like that the federal government imposes on every single school and the way it would work is it would be like if you're a private school you still have to fulfill those right you still have to show that you're mm -hmm. like teaching people that um but like yeah. regardless um 
the point would be that like, yeah, sure. Teaching about racial equity is very important. And also going back, I think a little thing about like what Adrian said, right? Yes, I don't believe that states should be able to violate their like citizens' rights ever. That's why we have the constitution, right? Like that's, an, I'm not I'm not advocating to like change that and just look at state charges or anything like that. I'm saying that like, um, yeah, like the federal government is there to ensure the minimum. It's there like, because if you are to say that we shouldn't allow teachers to impose their subjective opinions onto their students, I think that's a very fair point. But you also have the question of like, because there has to be a balance because Otherwise, what's the point of having teachers? You could just have robots output the information. The reason why teachers are really important is because they do put their own spin on the information and they teach the information, but they teach it in a way that's understandable for each and every student. That's the exact same idea that you apply like pretty much everywhere. And I think I'm not, I'm, I, I'm no expert on Alabama's education system, but if it actually did teach that some races were lesser, I would be extremely surprised. I think the reason why <laughs> Alabama like in general, you have at least the stereotype about Alabama citizens is because of the people there and the parents who pass that knowledge down to their children. And that's still going to happen regardless of whether you have a perfect education system or not. The point of the education system would then be to prepare kids to think critically. So, hey, they hear two pieces of information, one coming from their parents, one coming from you know, a more informed source, and they should be able to discern what's the true information, what's the not true information, what's the humane information, and what should be disregarded. That's the purpose of the education system, and I think at least the biggest purpose, and then hopefully you can progress from there. Yeah, I think comment on that. Um, yeah, no, so wait, really quickly, I just want to make sure, like, I didn't mean like teachers are like, of course, like the whole point of teachers is to like, you know, like give their own opinion and like kind of spin the lesson to cater towards their group of students. I completely, that's, yeah, but like I meant like in terms of their own personal ideologies, of course, textbooks are not going to object, like straight forwardly say like, okay like this is the ideology of like a certain teacher or something like that but certain standards make it so that they don't need to necessarily go into detail about some of these issues so it makes it seem like they're less important to students that's all like I don't know but that's all obviously like again it changes with every teacher and everything like that okay yeah, Adrian, yeah and like then I, I wanted to comment on more of a pragmatic level I'm looking at what Sid was saying about like um, societal values within these communities that make it so they grow up being prejudiced or whatever um, and also like before we go on let's not like stereotype all of the south as racist I and mean, you know there are obviously people in the south that aren't but i think we're we're thinking of a very specific type of people anywhere in the u.s that have grown up prejudiced it doesn't have to be just alabama that's like let's clear that up for any viewers in alabama um if we have any um but what i wanted to get at is like for these people that are like grow up prejudiced and like are, live in these communities um when the federal government steps in and um, says you have to start teaching this racial equity stuff. Um, you know, th they're going to say it as, oh man, the, the liberals are trying to brainwash us. Um, and I think that, that I mean, that, that, that's, that's true because they think, okay, these um, liberals in California have now lobbied the federal government to um, tell us what to tell our kids and, you know, if, and we don't agree with it. Um, so I, I think the question is, is, is how do we um, first change the actual problem itself of those societal attitudes? Shouldn't we work to mend um, how communities view race, because I think what Sid said of how um, racism is passed down from um, like parent to child and how it's through the whole like structure of society that we see racism prevail. Um, shouldn't we work to solve like that atmosphere and then, um, you know, uh, at, at that point, localities can um, put in their own 
um, like educational standards that, that fit within the, their new sort of racial literacy. Because I feel like um, knowing how conservatives feel about, um, and not saying that conservatives are the racist ones, but knowing how like conservatives feel about liberals telling them what to do in a federal level, they usually like don't want to follow it, you know, and, and, and they'll just like want to push back more and say, no, uh, we're not going to listen to, you know, uh, Gavin Newsom and Hillary Clinton. We, we want to uh, have our own curriculum. And I think that that might create more pushback. So again, I'm not saying that I don't support um, racial equity at a federal level. I think that it's important, but um, I just wanted to pose that point of view. I'm saying like, like leaving it to be local and creating more like societal acceptance of race versus like trying to um, put a federal mandatory on it before certain communities are there yet. Would that be doing more harm than good? Um. So, well, do you have like a proposal? Because, like, in the scenario, I right? don't. No, so, I'm. I'm. I'm just kind of airing the possibility of like what we think about that. I completely agree with you. I think a societal mm -hmm. change is obviously the ideal change. Like that, I definitely think that if the federal government necessarily didn't need to get involved, like, or like with this specific area of education or something, then I don't think they should. However, the only like the biggest way that um this issue is like can i can even see like a tangible solution is education just yeah. um just like objectively speaking like obviously experiences do shape opinions of course everyone's mm -hmm. um experiences has in some way or shape or form like um helped formulate like their own personal beliefs about certain topics right but but education and the way that a curriculum is uh, taught, especially for young minds, parents are opinions are and parents' viewpoints are a huge part of like formulating opinions and experiences are a huge part too. But education is that third huge component. Those are the three things like yeah. the trifecta of like 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 your like all of your thoughts. Like I know for sure that like I've changed so much because for me personally, the two classes that impacted my life like the most was AP government senior year and then English honors my junior year in terms of how I uh, perceive like certain communities, how I um, think about certain um, like like the whole gender like uh, debate. There's a lot of like different like quirks, I guess. There's a lot of different like arguments and stuff, but the way that I formulated my own opinions was because of education. My parents' opinions definitely gave me a baseline so I could start thinking, but it was education, it was teachers, it was experiences that helped like level that up. And I think right now yeah. a great thing in terms of experiences like that can maybe give a, not necessarily a, a tangible thing, but just like kind of like a different kind of experiences like right now because of all the riots going on because of the education that's like being given through like social media has actually tuned in a new way of like maybe having an experience and um i definitely believe that that has take like all the, the way that um social media has um kind of like helped encourage the black lives matter movement has it's i feel like it's encouraged education and it's encouraged um the idea that like youth can have voices in this specific um, like matter and like when it comes to social justice, which I personally feel like is a way that like you're learning and it's also like not necessarily in the jurisdiction of education um, or like- the, That's more the, societal, right? That, that, that's societal. the idea of societal right. change. Yeah. So I think that that is personally like one way that we're stepping in the right direction. 
it's by um, kind of using the platforms that are now trending or the platforms that exist now as a way, as like a vessel of for information, for resources, to educate yourself for ways that you can help actively. Um, but at the same time, again, not everyone has social media, but everyone has to go to school. And I think that um, the only way I personally can see, unless there is like some other way that these like the, this specific information, I can't really speak to everything right now, but like, especially when it comes to equity and equality, especially when it comes to different minority movements in history, though, especially when it comes to like um, social justice issues, is like if the federal government implements it within the textbook, they, they, there is some kind of one like portion or something that needs to be like every student needs to read and then they can like formulate it on their own that's just yeah. like what like that's what i can see but i mean if there is an easier way where they can like people can form their own unbiased opinions without like the federal government overstepping or like going yeah. into this specific uh topic i think that would be ideal but i can't really see that as like that's fair. A, i don't know so yeah yeah uh, i don't know i don't know if this would be like a complete solution it probably wouldn't be but it's just something to like point out about how the federal government isn't always necessary. I'm not sure if you guys know about the story of Daryl Davis, but he's a, a black man from Chicago who basically, um, I think he was a musician at the time. I might botch his story, but basically what he did was he eventually decided that he wanted to like have a meeting with members of the KKK and determine like why they thought. Oh, I have heard thought. of him. Yeah, exactly. Right. And what he did was basically he was able to befriend a bunch of members of the KKK and then either directly or indirectly, he eventually got 200 of those members to just leave the organization because they realized that, look, like Daryl Davis is a well-educated, like African-American who's not any of the stereotypes they believed. Right. And that mm -hmm. alone was powerful enough to get them to like set down their votes. How many of, of him are there? How many Daryl Davis? Exactly, right? That, that's, the, that's the, you can't, you can't, obviously you can't rely on him to do everything, right? Or like people like him to do everything, but it's something about how like our society should approach those who are like, who believe in evil ideologies. I, I agree that like, yes, they should not be in positions of power. We should do everything we can to remove them from that point, but then to convert them to a much better ideology, it, cannot be like i don't think the federal government is like going to do that perfectly and it requires people like daryl davis to get it's that multifaceted done. yeah yeah and one thing i wanted to comment on is um maybe we can like segue into talking about social media and and like echo chambers and stuff like that because um people often criticize social media as being an echo chamber and that we just kind of bounce around the same ideas to people who support them uh, and then it becomes a huge chamber of just kind of increased like and radicalization and this bubble where you don't actually see exposure to people that are actually like hateful you know people um never actually have those those hard conversations with people that are the real racists you know the ones that we the, the ones that we see on social media are just people that post um things about black lives matter and then applaud each other right but i think that one thing that's important there was this one post that i saw recently that mira sent me that we both agreed on is that like activists of social justice it should be their duty or uh to you know have these hard conversations with those that are actually causing the brute of the problem you know to talk to people that are i mean like a daryl davis like not necessarily to the extreme of the, of the 
KKK, but I mean like talking to your to your parents who are a little racially um, insensitive, right. talking to your your uncle who um, you know it, uh, says some racist things, you know, like like talking to those people um, outside of your social media echo chamber, I think is a really critical part of um, of the movement and and, and of promoting um, you know um, societal change and attitudes, but just only focusing on staying with what you're comfortable with and staying um, on posting something and getting applause from your fellow activists and then nothing happens is, is, is not, it can't be the only thing. You, it should be like a part of what you do is to promote that on your social media. But I think that a really critical part is going out and having these hard conversations. And I, maybe you guys can comment on that. Um, yeah, I 100% agree. Um, social media is, it can be an echo chamber on both sides, obviously, of like beliefs. Like, I think that, um, again, like, as I said before, it's like a good baseline to maybe start thinking about like outside resources. It can't just be the only source of resource. Um, I personally think of myself with some, as, as someone with a platform in like my community and the people that like follow me um, and the people that know me. So I personally have provided multiple resources for kids to go outside of Instagram and, um, you know, like have those conversations. Um, I think it's really important uh, to remember that, and I have, I've been guilty of like thinking um, the opposite, but it is important to remember that there are two sides. And I think sometimes people get a little bit like, uh, excited about one side that they forget that there are like two opinions and I think that the whole thing about the Black Lives, Ma Black Lives Matter movement and like again I'm an ally I'm not an African-American um, person and I personally um, because of the community that we live in I haven't been necessarily affected in the ways that other um, groups of people or other people specifically have um, but I think like Daryl Davis is an amazing example of an activist that could fight for his own movement. But I think the part of the issue is that we shouldn't rely specifically on any one person of any one movement to be the voice or to be the person of reason. Because I think that this whole entire movement, if it's taught me anything, is that African American, the African-American community has been screaming for years. Like the Black Lives Matter movement has existed for over no listening. a decade. And nobody has listened until you know social media has taken um, like took uh, control of the situation, kind of like grew the videos in, and that's when the protests and everything started happening. But it's not their responsibility to teach kids about certain events, which is why I, and it's not my responsibility to teach kids about. It's your responsibility to provide resources to help them educate, and I think that in every movement that there's been, there are people that are just tired of like, they, they've been talking for so long and no one's listening. And finally, when people are willing to talk, they're like, I was here the whole time. And so I think it's kind of like, that kind of climate has been toxic. And finally, for the first time, I think um, we're kind of, I think for the first time, at least for me, I've like learned what my role can be as like an ally and as a person with like, not a very big platform, but like a platform nonetheless, and like how I should act towards like the people that I'm talking to, because I know that I'm not, I don't want to be like, obviously I can't be Daryl Davis, I'm Indian, I'm not like the person that's 
particularly in this movement, but I need to be someone to help kids understand or like learn from different sources and help kids um, like, you know, like look past their own biases, which isn't like something that I'm working on myself um, to um, kind of like see the big picture instead of just like the echo chamber. So what do you guys think about that? I yeah. Uh, I, I guess I agree with a lot of that and um, basically yes it shouldn't be like purely an echo chamber you definitely interact with opinions who, of those that aren't your own right I mean of course there's some people who are just never going to listen and you don't want to just waste your time bashing your head against a wall and but actually one thing that I'm kind of just like realizing and I don't know if this is going to exactly make sense but it seems a little bit simple uh, it seems sorry, it seems a little bit similar to like how a criminal justice system should work. So it should work in the idea that like, if you think about social media, like the first part of what Mira was describing is the fact that you should try and educate as many people as possible and use social media as an outlet to disperse education so that people make the correct decisions. But if they don't, right, and that comes to what Adrian was saying, which is about the idea of the people who are legitimately believing in an evil ideology, believing in racism, like that kind of stuff. It's the idea that you cannot just deplatform them and ignore them, right? That would be similar to like a purely punitive measure in a criminal justice mm -hmm. system, but instead it's that more about analogy. rehabilitation. Yeah, mm -hmm. and actually talking to them, getting them to believe that what they did is wrong so that they become like functioning members of society. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, that's something I kind of just thought. That's why we have a jury, right? Like when, we're, when yeah. you're in a court of law, that's why jury duty exists. It's so that you're like, it's, it's just a, it's a system of checks and balances, right? That happens on every single level that we've seen. And in the social, in the context of like social media, the checks and balances are like, like making sure like everyone's opinions are heard, which is why the echo chamber can be bad at times. I don't think that's true though. I, I don't think that, that everyone's opinions can be heard on social media because I think like what Sid said is like, um, people are so quick to deplatform and so quick to cancel and, and kind of reinforce their own echo chamber that um, we are using a punitive system and, and not a rehabilitative system in social media. You know, when you block those you disagree with, when you cancel people, you know, are, are, are you really like employing those checks and balances to maintain like a, 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 an environment where you're having those hard conversations or are you doing everything you can to make sure that you don't have to have those and that you feel comfortable within your own bubble? I think you need to like, I think that that's like a general like that's generalizing a lot. I do think that a majority, I understand cancel culture and its own is like very toxic. It gives no opportunity to learn and educate or like yourself. It just is like, you're canceled, that's it. Like you, you're, it's not like forgiving. And I completely agree with that. I think that's like a whole other issue, but I know it kind of comes into play when we're talking about this. But like, for me personally, I'm like, again, I'm still learning and stuff, but I'm, my goal is to not cancel anyone. I'm just trying to say, hey, don't be quick to act or like if you made this mistake that's fine just fix it like you need to educate yourself and I think that um that for me personally in the context like within the past couple of days like just like last night mm -hmm. too I was like looking at different people like different um Instagram uh bios because I was like kind of like I was like looking through scrolling whatever and a ton of kids at Leland who at the first week that like the protests and everything started happening um they um 
were talking about um like they were the ones that were like oh the the blackout tuesday post or like they were doing like all the links and like they were they're posting reposting you know like trying to show everyone like they actually like cared about this and within three weeks it's been less than three weeks um since all this stuff has happened um they've taken completely erased um, everything that they've said. They've completely erased the resources that they so-called cared about to help kids educate themselves with their followers, their platforms. And of course, the people that did this, they all have their own platforms, right? They have their own groups of people to reach out to. And so what I said is I made a uh, little bit, it's a little bit passive aggressive, I'm not going to lie to you here, but um, it was just basically saying you made a mistake, you pretended to like care about it but like you you said you cared about it so quick like don't like just because you stopped like necessarily caring about it doesn't mean that everyone else like maybe someone else wants access to the resources and wants to go to you you know what i mean like so i think that the thing is is like cancel culture in itself is really toxic but it's also about like the rhetoric you use you're trying to support a group of people to re-educate themselves and like kind of like learn from their mistakes and um or like um give them the opportunity to formulate their own opinions without um being like ignorant which i think that applies mostly in this case but in general so um i do think a majority a lot of kids the cancel culture thing is really toxic on both sides i think that um both the left and the right and what they support um come on who has the right canceled no the the like okay cancel culture okay so the right can consider like there's a lot of like right um uh, teens like uh, that I've seen on social media who have basically just been like oh if you have blue hair like like basically anyone that formulates any opinion that isn't theirs about like maybe like uh, like again this is a completely different thing but like abortion or something like that there's they're not willing to listen to the other side they've already formulated their opinion if someone with blue hair is like that's like the that's like that's like a whole thing but like if someone has dyed hair and like they're like hippie or whatever and they give you a different opinion that offends your own cancel that's it i don't want to listen to any more of you're saying on the other side though the left if they if any other person like any person on the right justifies a cops not like any of the cops that we've like talked about and seen in the black lives matter movement cops maybe existing. like cops, maybe like the idea of like a cap or something like that like of course this has nothing to do with my own personal beliefs because those are different but like generally speaking like if a person on the left were to hear a person on the right saying hey maybe not all cops are bad canceled you know what i mean like that's really toxic on its own but again that's a general statement there are people that are trying to not maybe use the rhetoric necessarily associated with the canceled culture to ed like to encourage people within their platform to educate themselves but that's like a whole other thing like that's a whole issue in itself personally for me that's what I feel like I can do as an ally is like with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's like, I can't teach kids, like I can't teach people about the movement. It's not my place. And um, if no, like it's not necessarily African-Americans, like like uh, people within the movement, it's not their place either to necessarily like, like teach kids. So all you can do as an ally is provide resources to educate or like provide them opportunities like call them out but like not like cancel them if that makes sense like you know what i mean so i think that's like i think it just it all comes down to rhetoric on social media and i think that there's extremes on both sides and it can be toxic if it you know like if that keeps happening but i do think that there is a huge population of people that are trying to just give objective information rather than uh, and like call them out but like objectively just say like hey you need to educate yourself before they're quick to like, 
you know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, okay, you don't have to agree with me. It's fine. I, but I, I, I think I have, I have very little faith okay, in, 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 the, in the activism community's open-mindedness. And I think that um, what, one thing that I, I've had trouble with is like the idea that these people like took off their, like the, what the links they had in their bio after like a few weeks. I think it might be because of the kind of like faux activist culture that has been cultivated. It's the idea that, you know, if you don't post this, then you're canceled and you're racist. Okay, signaling. Yeah. Wait, let me finish quickly. But like, you know, it, it's the idea that once they like were forced to like get into this virtue signaling hollow activism like mindset, then they didn't actually stop to think about what they're posting and why it's important. So I think that the model of activism within social media, um, my ideal version, and again, this is just an opinion, y'all can talk about this. My ideal version would be one where there isn't this kind of um, imposition to virtue signal. Instead, it's, it's an imposition to conversate, an imposition to have discourse and reach out to those people that have, um, that have been uh, like coerced to put links in their bio that they don't really know about um, and to make it so it's more of a long lasting permanent um, change in attitudes rather than, okay, like post to make sure we know you're not racist sort of thing. Maybe I'll can comment yeah. on that. I'm just gonna like, I don't think, I mean, sure. I, I'd say that's the best version of activism possible, mm-hmm. but I don't think social media is set up in a way that will allow that. Like, I don't think like Twitter it's with inherent, yeah, so it's an inherent characters issue. is gonna be able to like, and also like the idea that like people don't have like the long attention span is necessary to read some huge paragraph post about like what the actual like problems with the like problems with the current system are how we have to fix them etc right that's the biggest problem and yeah honestly like I don't use social media very much and I don't like like to like get my politics from there or any of my information from there but like in general I think that's the problem I have seen on social media um okay I politely and very respectfully disagree with both of you um but it's totally fine. I mean, I think that I, you guys both have really good points. And that is honestly the ideal version of social media. But the cool thing about social media and the cool thing that this is such a new concept within the history of like, you know, the world, like social media has only been around for very few years compared to other things, is that um, people have found creative ways to get the message across. Um, you know, like aesthetically pleasing posts. Um, you know, like there's a lot of like, um, different resources and um, social media platforms that have used like graphic design to and like basically all their knowledge that they've learned from you know uh, educating themselves to create like small short bullet points about what certain movements are and then you can go ahead and like use that as your platform like to like again baseline and then go out of your like go and research some more um, or like they'll provide links or something like that. I do agree with you Adrian. I didn't mean like Um, that like there's a measurable way that someone's contributed to something. Um, I think that you don't need to have links in your bio to sign a petition or to donate. And I think that is a top, I like, I don't think the way that I phrase it was correct. Um, But I do genuinely think that if like social media shouldn't like in some way because of the usage between like, especially Maybe I can't maybe speak to every person because like said you were saying you don't necessarily use social media but for some like that's the easiest way to hold people accountable I think like that's uh there are there's no other like 
Wait, is, is, is Sid racist for not posting? Because I, no, I haven't no, seen Sid okay. post anything. That's, but that's what, okay, that's what my point is, is like, I, mm -hmm. that's, I'm just saying that is the easiest way that you can hold someone accountable, but it's not necessarily the most accurate way to hold someone accountable. But it does speak volumes for a lot of kids who have stayed silent on social media who are not silent. What I'm saying, like, I'm not trying to, um, you know, use this like one specific example to apply to everyone. That's not, that's not fair. That's not true. I know kids that have maybe links to other platforms in their bio who have signed tons of petitions, but for people who use their platforms um, as much as they do to like, you know, to only like to say like, oh, you know, like I care about this certain movement or I care about these things so much. And then like, like follow the trend for it for like two weeks and then completely disappear off the face of the earth. Like when it comes to all these specific things that is in its way, holding someone accountable. It is different in every scenario and it's different in every case. I'm not speaking to say like, if you don't use social media and to post about the petitions you've signed, you're racist. Like that's definitely not at all what I'm trying to say. But I am saying that in terms of accountability, you can't really necessarily hold anyone else accountable in any other way. I can't see, like, I'm not going to go and text every single person on my contacts list and say, hey, did you sign a petition? Hey, did you donate money? Hey, did you do this? Blah, blah, blah. But like, that is like one way that you can hold someone accountable. And I think that is something to um, keep in mind, I think. Um, for me personally, like, you can see my accountability by the things I post on social media because I have not only provided resources to educate, but I've shown people like receipts and places to donate money. And like, it, it, it like, that's like, no one else is going to know, like, if I don't, post, like, not necessarily like that, I'm, but I can hold myself accountable by the things that I post because I am someone with, again, like mm -hmm. a platform of people who want to listen to me. This is like, that's my way of like, showing my accountability towards my actions. However, I'm, I do think that there are tons and tons of people that aren't necessarily posting. And I don't think you need to get politics. You shouldn't have to get politics from like social media, but for a lot of kids, because of the way that social media is built, it is a really great resource that like people are gonna utilize to at least start getting kids to think. Because outside of a classroom setting, it's very easy to avoid politics. Um, and avoid like um, government, like learning about the government, learning about local, federal, state levels, learning about all that stuff. It's very easy to avoid it if social, but like now that this like movement has trended, you can see what an influence social media has had on helping kids inform themselves and stuff like that. So, yeah, so I was gonna say that I, I think that we um, agree that the ideal form of social media activism is to be able to reach out one-on-one -on -one and have conversations with people. Um, mm -hmm. but I think that like a structural, just pragmatic issue with social media is that that's not how it's, that's not how it's set up. So I think that um, like, like well-meaning, good intentioned activism on social media can create a, a, a sort of aura of virtue signaling and, and hollow, what's called slacktivism. So I think mm -hmm. that that's kind of my issue with it. But um, yeah, I think uh, we're getting near to um, about an hour and a half here. So do we have any sort of... Um, Closing commentary that we want to add on before we end it. Anything about police reform or criminal justice, or barely anything, honestly. We did right? at the beginning, yeah. No, at we, the we beginning, did. right? Yeah, yeah. I was. I mean, it, it was a fun conversation. Still, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's the nature of podcasts. That you you start with an issue and then you um, tackle it and and you move on to its tangents and sort of get a broader issue of the a question as a whole. So yeah. <laughs>
Sorry, I got a little carried away, but yeah. Uh, no, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for being on, and um, I guess one to hear. So, goodbye, everyone. Yeah.